And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm going to spend this hour hanging out with my friend, Dr. Mark Muska. And that means you're in big luck because that's Ask the Professor Hour. Any question you might have about the Bible, let us know what it is, and we will tackle it for you. 877-933-2484 is the number, 877-933-2484. Send us a text, let us know what the question is. You can also email me if you like the old-fashioned way, bill at myfaithradio.com, bill at myfaithradio.com. You can email me the question, I will ask that on your behalf. We've already got questions coming in from listeners, and this is maybe my favorite hour of the week when Mark comes in. He's always such a delight. Let's take 60 seconds and then bring on the questions. In many countries around the world, medical care is scarce. Countless millions have no access to safe surgery. Mercy Ships is there to help. Mercy Ships provides free surgeries for the thousands of those who are waiting for surgery at each port. Mercy Ships is bringing services to countries that would otherwise never be able to access those services. Find out how you can help by visiting our website at mercyships.org. That's mercyships.org. Abiding with Christ throughout the week can sometimes be challenging. Faith Radio offers a free resource to help you called the Prayer Devotional Email. Sign up under the subscriptions tab at myfaithradio.com and start receiving weekly emails containing a thoughtful, encouraging quote and a prayer. It helps set your mind on God as you deal with the many other demands of life. Stay focused and at peace with the Faith Radio Prayer Devotional Email. Welcome back to the show. Always happy to welcome Dr. Mark Muska in studio. Hey, Mark. Good afternoon. It's rainy, but it's nice. It is nice. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. And uh, Mark, when you come in, uh, listeners love it, and as do I. Mark is the professor of biblical and theological studies here at the University of Northwestern. And Mark, I've already got questions coming in, so why don't we just start? Go. What do you say? That's what we're here for. Yeah, what do you say? All right, here's a question from a listener. Um, Romans 5, 6. Yep. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for our sins. What does just the right time actually mean? That's a great uh, verse that pulls back the curtain a little bit to say this was all planned. Mm-hmm. This uh, God has foreordained it. I love the way Peter says this in Acts 2 in his sermon there where he said uh, that this Jesus was put on the cross according to the preordained purposes and plan of God, that this was no accident. There are some heresies out there that think that Jesus was killed prematurely before he could finish his uh, mission. No way that uh, he himself makes that clear and then the gospel writers make this clear. So just at the right time, Christ died, and I like it even further, his whole life. Galatians 4.4, it says, in the fullness of time, or just at the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that gives me great encouragement to say, this isn't something running amok here that God is, you know, has his hands in his hair and he's going, yikes, what do I do here? Uh, This is all preordained and we can have confidence in it. Love it. Another listener is asking this question, Mark. The real question ends up being that if we have a new spirit and a new heart as believers, 
and no longer have a sinful nature, then why do we still sin? Yeah. I think I know the answer, but it's a great topic for discussion. I believe it's where the renewing of the mind comes in. Yeah, that this uh, this points to the the two ideas that complement themselves in Christian theology. One is when we put our faith in the gospel and depend on Jesus to forgive our sins, to give us peace with God and eternal life, there's a bunch of stuff that happens right then that one of them is called regeneration, or we are born again by the Holy Spirit. A whole new creature is created, Paul says, Second Corinthians 5. We also are justified uh, that in the court of law that God reigns over as judge, we are pronounced not guilty. In fact, we're pronounced righteous because we're joined to Christ. And I could give you five, six more, just like that, mm-hmm. you know, of things that happen instantly, whether we're aware of it or not when we put our faith in the gospel that happened to us. But then it's like, okay, now what? And because we've been justified doesn't mean that we suddenly are sinless and we go, again, this is another uh, heresy through the ages to say that we just don't sin anymore uh, after we put our faith in the gospel. And I love to uh, tease students about this one to say, well, can we talk to your roommate about that and see uh, if you are living sinlessly, if you say you're doing mm-hmm. that? Uh, that is an indefensible thing. Right. Uh, and so there's a process. Usually we put it under the banner of sanctification, although sanctification also applies when we put our faith in the gospel and all these instantaneous things. But it also talks about how over the course of our lives, then we are made more and more into the image of Christ, and we become Christ-like. In fact, that is the goal of the Christian life, is to progressively grow and mature as a Christian. That uh, Peter says this in in, uh, 1 Peter 1, he says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by Mm -hmm. it you may grow in respect to salvation. So we start out as babies, and just like babies are supposed to grow, we're supposed to grow to maturity. And that, Paul says, that's his goal in Colossians 1, where he says, our whole ministry is to present every man complete or perfected in Christ. So that whole process isn't all victories. Sometimes we resist temptation and sometimes we succumb to it. We don't, I'm not quite sure if I would agree that we no longer have a sin nature. We, sin is no longer master over us, Paul tells us in Romans 6. But that doesn't mean we can still, uh, we, we may not uh, listen to its voice from time to time. In fact, I'll go so far as to say for every Christian I've ever talked to who's on enough, honest enough to say it, there is a handful usually of areas of temptation and sin that we struggle with maybe for the rest of our lives as Christians that we're especially weak in those areas. It's not everything, but it's some mm-hmm. things where we constantly have to take it to the Lord and uh, ask for his forgiveness to cover this even though we struggle with it on a regular basis. So Mm -hmm. uh, that just tells us that uh, we have not yet been made perfect in Christ, that we still are living in a world that tries to lure us away. Uh, Demonic powers are trying to do that, and even our own bodies, our flesh, still uh, draws us towards sin. All right, here's another one. One of my my favorite regular listeners, Terry, says, When King Saul visits the witch of Endor to talk to the spirit of prophet Samuel, was the spirit really Samuel or was it demonic? Among all the different teachings I've heard on this biblical story, people seem to be split on their verdict. And that's because it's just not uh, definitive. Okay. 
that if you read this thing uh, over in First uh, uh, Samuel, uh, just the context here, uh, Samuel wants to go to battle against the Philistines, and usually he would, uh, uh, did I say Samuel? Saul, King yeah. Saul, wants to go to battle against the Philistines, and he usually would ask Samuel the prophet whether he should do it or not, and his success on it. However, uh, Samuel now has died, and so Saul is looking for uh, this uh, this prophetic advice of whether he should uh, whether he should uh, go into battle or not, and so uh, he goes to this medium, or sometimes she's called the witch of Endor. Mm-hmm. She's a medium. She's a, a, a magi. Mm-hmm. Or, or a lot of names are used for these type of people, but uh, he goes and asks her to call up the spirit of Samuel from the afterlife, from the dead, and uh, she. Uh, goes through this whole rigmarole. It's in uh, uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 28. And it says here, uh, I'll just read the text here, that uh, when she calls up this spirit, uh, it's, uh, I'm going to start in verse 11. Uh, it says, the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And Saul said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel coming, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And then it says, uh, verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid, but what do you see? She said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. What is his form? He said, and she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped up the robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. And I love this because the first words out of Samuel's mouth here, this spirit that they're claiming to be Samuel, Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And then his pronouncement of his uh, his uh, uh, fate in battle that day is he says, before the end of the day, you're going to be with me mm-hmm. in the place of the dead. So that sounds on on the surface level, that sounds very plausible that this could have been uh, Samuel himself called from the dead to give this pronouncement to, to Saul. But there's all kinds of red flags involved with that. This is very rare, almost unique in the mm-hmm. scriptures that anyone would have this kind of contact. Mediums were consistently condemned as a cultic and not believing in God. So this whole thing was wrong. In fact, Saul had made this uh, outlaw in Israel. That's why the witch was so upset with him because uh, she thought her life was in danger now because Saul had made it illegal to have mediums in Israel. So they knew they weren't supposed to do this. And so it's very possible that this is a demonic impersonation of Samuel the prophet. Interesting. Something you have to remember about demons is their main modus operandi is deception. They love to try to represent things other than what they really are. And so it would be very much in keeping with a demonic tactic here to have this demon impersonate Samuel, even to the point where Saul thinks it really is him. So this is one I really don't lay awake at night much worried about because... And I shall not either. Well, that that (laughs) question is secondary to the primary issue here that Saul is clearly... Uh, away from God in his thinking and in the things he's doing, and he's going to pay for it. He's going to die. The kingdom is going to be torn from him, mm-hmm. and it's already been given to David uh, by God. Uh, Samuel anointed David. So uh, that's the real 
main narrative of this section of 1 Samuel that we have to keep in mind. But it does make you scratch your head. So I'm not going to get upset with a, a caller that is wondering about this. Right. Lots of people have, have wondered about yeah. it. You get these peaks behind the curtain into the right. spiritual domain, and most of the time it raises more questions and gives us answers. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is in studio. We're going to take a little break. Let us know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Musk is in the studio, and he is uh, has his Bible open and his notes in front of him, so he is going to process uh, any any and every question you can send our way. We'll do our very best to keep things moving. We've got lots of questions coming in today. Mark, you're going to be very busy today. Everybody's so you know. sitting inside looking at the rain, and they're thinking exactly. about their Bible. Exactly, so. exactly. And we've got a caller on the line. Uh, Nancy's calling in from Forest Lake. Nancy, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking my call. Um, this, mor- <laughs> this morning in my daily Bible reading, I came across a passage out of Lamentations 3, mm-hmm. and it talks about how the author, I don't remember who it is, but the Jeremiah. author is, Jeremiah, thank you, mm-hmm. is deeply troubled because of the suffering that he is enduring mm-hmm. at the hands of God. Yep. When I'm talking to other people, oftentimes the question that comes up is, how can an all-loving and good God allow such suffering to go on? And I always thought that God was aware of suffering, but only allowed it temporarily until his plans are fulfilled. Mm-hmm. But how do, you, how do you reconcile this passage where God seems to be actually causing Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the Book of Lamentations, just to give it your historical context, Nancy, uh, this is written after Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and this is the judgment that God has said that is going to come to the southern kingdom Judah and to Jerusalem because of their constant rebellion for the last several hundred years that he sent prophets. Jeremiah himself says it, that I came for 35 years, one message after the other, warning you and encouraging you to turn from your sin, and yet you've continued on. So now the hammer's going to fall. And uh, and they are, in fact, they come under the judgment of God because they've had time after time, generation after generation, to turn from their sin, and they haven't done it. So if you look at a passage like Lamentations, just by itself, it looks like God is cold-hearted and uh, vindictive. But if you look at the context of how patient he was for all these centuries, continually uh, urging these people to turn back to him, uh, you can see that enough is enough. And God is patient, but he doesn't wait forever. And it's something that's very sobering that when God's judgment comes, it is complete, it is awful, and it's inescapable. So I like to take this into 2019 to say there is a future day of judgment that is clearly taught in the Scriptures, and we need to warn each other and warn anybody who will listen to us about avoiding that because it is so direct on how to avoid God's judgment, and that is to put our faith in the gospel and put our trust in Jesus to forgive our sins. So uh, 
does that make sense? I mean, in the context of Amen. all of this, it it's it's understandable. I, I liken it to a parent who tells a child repeatedly uh, to do something and they just don't do it. And so finally, the wrath of the parent falls and the child suffers. And, oh, you're mean. You, you don't love me. All this kind of stuff. Of course I love you. You've had plenty of opportunities to turn from this. And now uh, this is a day of accounting. Great question, Nancy. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. All right, uh, Mark, Jeff is wanting to know if a believer dies with known sin in their life, like refusing to make things right with family, ex-friend, how does this affect his Bama seat appointment? Yeah, uh, this is a good question, Jeff. Uh, there's a lot of different ideas that come out of different traditions in the church about this. And uh, uh, the... Um, uh, I think that, first of all, this Bema seed of Christ, Bema is a, a word that means judgment, and it's uh, it's based on a passage in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul here is uh, talking about the life we live now in the flesh, and then the life that we will live when we die and go and be with the Lord. And so uh, uh, he says, I'm going to pick it up here uh, in... Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, he says, verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, courage I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. And now here it comes in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there is a day of accounting that comes for all of us. Now, uh, I agree with the theological tradition here, uh, uh, Jeff, that sees this as the the judgment that the the follower of Christ undergoes, that we have been justified, we have been forgiven, and we have received eternal life because we put our faith in the gospel, but yet we still are of are evaluated and judged for our works. Uh, this is really quite clear. Jesus makes it clear in, in John chapter 5 where he says, I, I truly I say to you, anyone who believes in me has passed from death into life. And uh, there's, there's no longer judgment for them in that sense of uh, eternity in the balance. But yet our works are still weighed. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about this, where our works are judged, whether they're wood, st- uh, st- uh, straw and stubble or precious stones. And we are rewarded for those works that we do as a follower of Christ. But Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 3, if it's wood, st- hay and stubble, it gets burned up in the fires of judgment, but we are still saved. We are not lost, but there, there is this judgment of our service to Christ that will take place. That's what's being talked about in 2 Corinthians 5. So I don't know if any of us, unless we have just spent time with God and making sure that we have taken care of all these things that we may be done to offend him and sin against him, and then we die right there before we can even think another thing, I think most of us will probably die with some things that are displeasing to the Lord uh, still uh, not dealt with with him. And so it appears as though those will uh, things will be burned up and then we will be forever with the Lord. So we we don't. What I'm trying to get at here is we don't have to be shaken in our shoes about 
oh boy, you know, I, 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 I'm, my salvation is in jeopardy here because I still struggle with sin. And if I die in that state of mind or that state of, of, of heart, then I'm in really trouble. Uh, I don't know if you can support that uh, sufficiently in the scriptures. So kind of a long answer here, Jeff, but it's, it's a tricky question because there's different terms used for different parts of uh, the judgment of God that's coming someday. Mm-hmm. Great answer. Uh, I've got a bunch more, Mark, but sure. I'm just trying to gauge my time here. Um, so I'm going to throw this one at you. Okay. I'm going to embellish this one just a little bit. Oh, boy. But it's, well, I think I'm going to add a couple things to this question. Okay. But there will be food consumption in heaven. Well, it says that we're invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Okay. And so last time I checked at every marriage like that, <laughs> we all eat. Okay. So and there would so, be a feeling of satiation then, right? I don't know about that. Okay. I, I think you're out on a limb a little bit there. <laughs> but, I um, might be. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, th- this is something, though, that we... And again, I don't like speaking about it so much in heaven, but after the resurrection takes place and we have been given our new incorruptible bodies, we have the capacity to eat. And I think Jesus is our model for this because in Luke 24, when Jesus has been resurrected, he proves to the disciples that he has a physical body by taking some food and eating it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he was hungry, but he was demonstrating to them that, that he was not a spirit. Spirits don't eat but physical human beings have the capacity to eat. So, yeah, this is something. Maybe there'll be more there than the Scriptures led on to as far as uh, eating and satisfying our hunger. Uh, that way, I, I, I doubt it. I think we've got uh, greater things that will be satisfying hungers way beyond hunger for food. Yeah. But uh, we just don't know. It's something we have to uh, wait for and see what mm-hmm. happens. Can you name a time, Mark, that the Lord answered a prayer, a specific prayer in a way that you thought there's there's no doubt this was the, uh, the Lord? No doubt this was a God thing. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I think you can point to almost any of the miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. Um, the one I think that is so demonstrable that maybe sticks out is over in John chapter 9, when uh, Jesus comes across a man who was born blind, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, 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 he heals this man, <laughs> and the man is confronted because Jesus tells him to go uh, take uh, take his pallet to go home, and uh, uh, they. Uh, the Pharisees get all over him and about this. You know, how did how are your eyes opened? And even the formerly blind man says to these uh, Jewish leaders, he said, since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Mm, wow. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. Right. So that's about as demonstrable as I can yeah, think of. Yeah, I have a feeling this was a personal application question. Oh, okay. One of those things where it's clear that the God intervened, and, and this mm-hmm. was a definite mm-hmm. answer to a, a prayer specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, let me take a little break. Mark Musk is in studio, so let me know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. You can also email me, bill, at myfaithradio.com. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Musk is in studio, which means let us know what your questions are. Any 
question you might have about the Bible, or maybe you've had a discussion with somebody over some theological matter, and you would like to ask the professor, feel free, 877-933-2484. He'll take any questions. The super hard ones, I get 10% commission on those. So No, super hard ones I give to you. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see that. <laughs> I'd like to see that. All right, here's a question. Uh, you've got, uh, is it Peter, uh, James, and John at the Transfiguration? Yep. And they show up and they go, oh, oh, wow, should we make tents for you and Moses and Elijah? How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? It had you see their to, pictures on the internet? It had to have been uh, obvious, and maybe they were identified verbally and it just isn't okay. recorded in the Scripture. Okay. okay. Maybe Moses had a copy of the Ten Commandments there <laughs> in his hand, and uh, and uh, who knows about Elijah. Yeah. But we don't know, and so... Uh, but that instant recognition, you know, we don't mm-hmm. know. Do you think we'll have instant recognition in heaven? That's a really good question, Bill, because it gets into the nature of our resurrected bodies. And again, I don't like talking about it with heaven because heaven is the place that we go when we die now. It's an intermediate state of an existence for us as humans where we are disembodied. We, We live on as souls or spirits. And then when the trumpet sounds and the archangel shouts, we are reunited with resurrected bodies. And that's the way we spent eternity is in resurrected bodies. So uh, in resurrected bodies, now I forgot what the first part of that was. Do we, what was your question again? In in heaven, do we what? Will we have that instant recognition? Uh, Yes. And uh, this, again, I use Jesus as an example of this to say whatever it is that makes us recognizable, uh, we will be recognizable. Because again, uh, in Luke 24, after Jesus is raised, remember how he comes up to the two disciples that were walking to a town Mm -hmm. outside of Jerusalem? And then uh, John tells us in the text, or Luke tells us in the text, that uh, Jesus prevented them from recognizing him as he talked to them. Now, logically, that says if he wouldn't have done something, they would have recognized him. Mm. So I go with that to say whatever it is that makes us recognizable, that is there. I mean, we got to think about this for a minute. Is it height? Is it weight? Is it hair color, eye color, you know, uh, physique and all this kind of thing? I don't think we're going to be running around in these 60 or 70 year old bodies, some of the people my age, that we will be regenerated in these new incorruptible bodies. I like the way C.S. Lewis messed around with this in his space trilogy, where he talked about this man who had been uh, who had been made immortal, and he looked like a very young man, but he had a very full beard and and uh, and fully developed as uh, an adult male. And then Lewis says in the text, he says, and looking at him, they realized they couldn't assign an age to him at all. Oh, wow. <laughs> that it was an indecipherable. Age and so maybe you know that's where Lewis was wrestling with this, mm-hmm. but uh, I I can't prove it, Bill. But I suspect that we will be uh, recognizable. Uh, maybe it's name tags. No, you never know. I mean, yeah, it, it works. My in, name is. It works in churches, yeah. so it might work <laughs> in the new heavens and new earth. I'm just kidding there. But it, that course. whatever it is, it, yeah. it seems as though we're recognizable. Yep. Let me ask two questions in one. Okay. A couple questions. They're both heaven-related. Bonus questions. Uh, will we have uh, any earthly thoughts in heaven, like family, memories on earth? Boy, and... that's a tough one. Okay. Especially the one I get asked the most with that one is about what about when you start counting heads and you're going around counting everybody and you see some of the people you love aren't there. Right. Is heaven going to be a happy place? And that I just don't know. And I don't know if anybody can really speak to that, Bill. Mm-hmm that uh, that to me would be an 
awful reality to see family members, people I care about, that aren't there, mm-hmm. especially when there was every indication that they should be there, that they had the professional faith, but yet it was a false thing, and mm. they just they truly didn't know the Lord. Doesn't that tie to the white throne of judgment, where there's weeping and gnashing? Or, I mean, they're, they're, all the tears will be dried? And, and Well, that's after the last judgment right. in Revelation 20. Right. There's two chapters left there that talk about this new heavens and new earth now. Right. That comes, and part of that is what you talked about, both in Revelation twenty and in chapter twenty-one. It talks about no more pain, right. no more tears. more tears. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there's been theologians that have speculated the reason we'll have tears in our eyes is because we will see that there are people that are not there mm-hmm. that we've loved. And so it's conjecture; you can't prove it, but yeah. it seems plausible. Okay, the part two. What about the animals in heaven? Yeah, uh, again, in the new heavens and the new earth, earth, this is something the Old Testament prophets really jumped on. Uh, You can read this in Micah, in Isaiah, where it talks about this eternal bliss and uh, utopic utopic kind of situation in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, Very famous statements where uh, one of the, uh, Isaiah says that the the lion will lie down next to the lamb. Mm -hmm. You know, normally a lamb there, the lion's looking at his chops and he's going to kill the thing and eat it. But no, they're going to be at peace. And even a little child will be able to play next to the hole of the cobra. uh, That there's, so it appears as though there's animals there. Now, I don't know if you're going here with this, but there's a whole lot of people who have uh, precious boots or Fido or something like that that they loved in this life, and they're wondering if their pet dog or cat is going to be in heaven there. I don't don't know if we can speculate about that. Yeah. If you need Fido, he will be there. Well, this is what I used to tell my kids when they were really young. My son one time said, you know, Dad, I don't want to go to heaven because I like home. And uh, I said, well, you know, what do you think, Evan, what's the thing you like doing the most? And at that time, he was at the age where it was something about with cars and racing around and having fun. And I said, well, you know what? You're going to be doing that in heaven or you're going to be doing something so much cooler you won't care about the cars. Right. That it won't matter to you. That's where I like to leave that one. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Here's a question. A little bit, um, this has got a couple sentences to it. It appears the Bible warns against drinking because it can lead to making bad decisions, but drinking itself isn't a sin. The same with warning us of gluttony and money. Too much food and money can lean to sin, but it is not a sin in and of itself. Is it the same with sex before marriage? Does it warn against the bad things that can come of it, or is it an actual sin in and of itself? Yeah, the the, uh, sexual ethics, that is in a little bit different category there Mm -hmm. because uh, we are given the standard to say that uh, a sexual, physical expression of love and romance is only legitimate within uh, the confines of marriage. And so any kind of extramarital uh, sexual activity is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so is it forgivable? Of course. Uh, but it is uh, wrong. The other ones you mentioned, in and of themselves, these things are not uh, wrong of to uh, partake of food or to be using money uh, to support yourself. The key word I think of there, though, is excess or outside the bounds, where it becomes almost like a, a little god or mm-hmm. an idol to you, where you want that more than you want Jesus. And I would say the same, there, there's a similar principle with sexual activity to say there's nothing wrong with 
us having a sex drive as human beings and being prompted and having sexual urges, but they are to be expressed within the confines of marriage uh, between a man and a woman. And so uh, these are good gifts that have been given to us from God, things like money and uh, food and uh, the gift of sex, but they are to be expressed within the confines that God gives us. It's not just anything goes. Mm -hmm. All right, Mark, here's a question. Uh, From my studies, there is no sinner's pray or sinner's prayer in the Bible. No one was ever told to accept Jesus into their heart, and I cannot find a verse where baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. Yeah, uh, the uh, that uh, it's it's a, an astute observation. Those kind of terms are not used in and of themselves. Uh, should we be concerned about that? Um, I, I'm not really concerned about it. Uh, these are theological teaching expressions that help us understand what the Bible talks about when it says that we are to believe in the gospel. So that it's been very helpful for tens of millions of people through time to have uh, to suggest to them a way that they could pray or that they could talk to God and express their newfound faith in the gospel and their decision to follow Christ. That's kind of abstract to just say it like that, Bill, but to be able to just repeat a prayer and have the person repeat it after you, sometimes that helps to make it clear so they they can take that step. There is no magic prayer that you have to say exactly the right words and then boom, you know, you become a mm-hmm. Christian or something like that. So this idea of the sinner's prayer, it's extremely helpful to uh, to clarify Christian teaching as far as what it means uh, to accept the gospel. This thing about accepting Jesus into your heart, that's enormously helpful with young children especially. Mm-hmm. I, I would guess you probably have several thousand of your listeners right now that they knelt down next to their bed with their mom or dad one night before bed and asked Jesus into their heart. I'm thinking millions. Well, I, I don't know if you have quite that. Oh audience. no, no, Mark, you'd be you know, surprised. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, don't go selling me short. Get get me a number. So, but <laughs> but the idea is, it, again, it is a Christian teaching. That's what theology is all about, and we don't have to be bashful about using theological terms and expressions to explain biblical teaching. We just have to be careful not to make them biblical themselves because they they aren't. But we can we can lead a child to Christ very clearly using that kind of imagery. Yeah. Uh, comment on Romans ten nine: Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Mm-hmm. So yeah. believe in your heart. Yeah. Confess with your mouth, so you actually verbalize mm-hmm. that you are putting your faith in Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that He is. Uh, I can't remember how the rest of the verse goes that he's raised from the dead, is it? Uh, Yeah. And so uh, that, again, uh, people have used that as some kind of formula. I would say that it's very helpful, Bill, to explain that and teach about it in clear terms of what that exactly means. Honestly, when it comes to the gospel, I think the best, clearest, most direct statement is what Paul gives the Corinthians in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians where he says, this is the gospel that I proclaim to you, that you believe by which you are being saved. And he says, and that gospel is that Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day. 
And that's what we have to put our trust in, that that is true, so that our sins are forgiven by Christ dying and then being raised on the third day. Mm-hmm. So the, the, uh, this, is the, this is the role of theology. It helps, hopefully, to clarify things without making the theology of some kind of of ritual or or a necessary statement that we have to make. Mm-hmm. Let me take a little break, Mark. When we come back, I want to do kind of a little uh, deep dive on John 14. So get that open to John 14. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We have time for a couple more questions. 877-933-2484. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Musk is in studio, and we are chatting up a storm with verses and questions. Lots of questions coming in. Um, Yeah, here's a question. I don't know if, because there's no verse attached to it, Mark. Does your guest ever teach on the difference between the Old and the New Covenant? Yeah, all the time. Okay. This is uh, one of the great uh, storylines of the Scripture as a whole. Um, I think if there's a, a passage that uh, nails it down as good as any, it's in Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, the author comes back to it a couple different times in Hebrews. Uh, but the Old Covenant, it, from New Testament point of view, the Old Covenant is the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, Exodus 24, where he made them his people. He constituted them, formed them into his nation. And that's where the law was given, and this is what the Jews lived by for all those years. You know, this was about 1400 B.C., so a mm-hmm. long time, 14 centuries before Jesus came. But then Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, predicts that there is a new covenant coming, not like the old one that I made with the people at Sinai, but this new one. And in that covenant, uh, there's going to be whole new promises that are better. And so Jesus inaugurated that new covenant with his death. And so the author of Hebrews gets into this where uh, he talks about this better ministry of Jesus and this better covenant that was put into effect. And let me just read a couple of things here uh, from this. Uh, He says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, God says, Behold, days are coming when I will effect a new covenant. And this is where the writer of Hebrews is reading from Jeremiah 31. He quotes Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And he says that I will give them new hearts, that uh, verse 11, they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful uh, to their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. And now the writer of Hebrews comes back in verse 13 and says, when he says a new covenant, he has made the first covenant obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And so now we live under this new covenant of forgiveness of sins and changed hearts through the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has instituted that covenant. So now the old covenant is not, it has been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. This is what Jesus says himself in Matthew 5. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he has fulfilled it. It has 
served its purpose, but now we're under the new covenant. And honestly, Bill, the coolest part about this, I think, that we are reminded of continually of this new covenant is when we celebrate the Lord's table Mm -hmm. in our church gatherings. Because if you listen to it carefully, what Jesus said when he took the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. We know that these covenants were put into effect or ratified through sacrifice. And so what Jesus is saying that night is he's saying, through my death, through my blood, this new covenant is being started. Mm. Forgiveness of sin changed hearts. So we are now new covenant followers of Christ. I love it. All right, we've got a caller on the line from the Duluth area. I believe his first name is Aegis. Did I say that right? Uh, almost. <laughs> Say it again. Say it again. Uh, resist. Resist. Okay. You have a question. Yeah. Hello. Yes, uh, my name is Resist. R-E-G-I-S. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for taking my call, Bill uh, and uh, Dr. Masker and uh, all guys you do. Um, I will make my question short. Uh, I've been reading, my wife and I have been reading about uh, Esther. And then uh, yes. I come across, yeah, when they start all the chapters, it says how Queen Vashti was uh, uh, kind of all judged. And then for me, I was like, why God, we want uh, to sacrifice an individual on the sake, for the sake of uh, saving these people, in this case the Jews. And then I didn't kind of forget it. Uh, and then that was the first question I had when I was reading the book. And the second, the, 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 when uh, after, after hanging Haman, uh, and then uh, the king asked, uh, what do you want me to do? And she, instead of like giving mercy to those people who were persecuting them, she uh, told the king, to have all the other people that be killed. So they just killed about like 75,000 people. Uh, instead, uh, she had the opportunity to give mercy or to forgive those who were being prosecuted, them, I mean. So uh, that, I didn't what to be calling uh, Christians to forgive those who prosecutors. Yes. Like, I didn't get those two questions. Yeah, thank well, you. I th- those are great questions. Uh, I, I appreciate, Risa, uh, that this, uh, you're really thinking uh, through those passages. Uh, read through it again and read it closer because I'm not sure if you're getting it quite the way uh, that, uh, that the storyline is told in the book of Esther. First of all, Vashti is deposed as queen there in uh, uh, Persia because she won't dance for her drunk husband and the men in, the, it sounds like a frat party. <laughs> they call her in. He wants to show off his wife and she's got enough self-respect where she won't do it. And so he deposes her because of that. This is way before Mordecai or uh, any of uh, Haman or any of these other characters come into the scene at all. So I don't think we can make some kind of a, a case that, uh, God, you know, has to uh, kill this woman Vashti in order for His plan to rescue the Jews to uh, uh, to be accomplished. That's that's out of order in timing. Uh, furthermore, there's no statement made that Vashti's put to death. She simply is removed as queen, and then Esther takes her place. And then when uh, the plot of Haman is exposed, which is quite a passage in uh, in the book of Esther. 
that they have a banquet and uh, Esther, uh, she exposes Haman as uh, the, the one who wants to kill her and all her people, the Jews. And the king is extraordinarily upset about this. Uh, he goes out and thinks about it, and Haman uh, throws himself at the feet of Esther to plead for his life just as the king comes back in, and he thinks that Haman's trying to assault the queen then, Queen Esther at that point. So he takes Haman and uh, hangs him on the gallows that he had planned for Mordecai. But then this, uh, the, uh, the king had made... A, uh, a royal decree that on such and such a date that the the Jews could be attacked and killed all the Jews in his kingdom and all of their possessions taken as plunder. And because a king's edict cannot be revoked, uh, Esther uh, is part of this where the king decides to make another a proclamation that on that day that he proclaimed in his first proclamation, on that day the Jews can defend themselves. So it's not like she's saying we want to wipe out all these enemies that we have, but this is the opportunity that they had to defend themselves. So I don't think we can somehow say that Esther is heartless or a lack of grace or forgiveness here. Uh, She's just interested in her people being able to defend themselves when this day comes when uh, their enemies were going to destroy them. So it's a little bit of a twist uh, in the story, but it's a very important one to get that uh, true. And so we have to be careful there not to go in a direction that the storyline itself doesn't go in. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it's a great question and very, yeah. very interesting. Well, he's really thinking response. there. He's oh, he really is thinking. trying to There's work no that question. through. Yeah. All right. Can you describe how we are created in his image? Oh, yeah. That's a great question. This is, uh, this is declared for us right in the beginning in Genesis uh, chapter 1. It talks about that how we as human beings are created in God's image. And you know, Bill, uh, the Bible never says that about angels, that angels were created in God's image. Mm -hmm. He talks about them being the sons of God, but not being created in his image. And it's never used for animals as well. And so this is something that appears to be unique to the human race. Uh, Let me just read it here in Genesis 1. It says, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, Theologians have wrestled with through the centuries, Bill. In fact, there's three really prominent theories about the implications of this image. One of them says that this image means that we are actually like God in many ways. Wow. That God is loving. We have the capacity to love. God is intellectual and rational. We have rational capability. Bring it on. God is creative. Mm-hmm. We also have creative abilities. So that's one school of thought with this. Another one is, is that this image is primarily an issue of relationship with God, that we have a unique relationship with God as human beings, especially through what Jesus does for us, so that we are able to communicate with him and relate to him in a unique way because we bear his image. And then a third one that comes out of this Genesis 1 passage is, it's not so much what we are or our relationship with God, but the image means that 
that we have been given dominion over the earth to rule over it and to use it for the benefit of the human race. And so I think all three have an element of truth to them, mm-hmm. but the, it's it's uh, such a, a basic elementary kind of an expression that really goes quite deep. Once you jump into that pool of the yeah. image of God, you're in over your head. Yeah, no question. So, we have a minute left, Mark. If okay. uh, uh, Emily wrote in and said that her singing voice is horrible, but will it be better in heaven since we'll be singing praises to the Lord? I don't know, Emily. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we can encourage everybody to say that God is interested in volume more than quality. <laughs> and so this is why I really regret that organs are out of our church yeah. as, uh, assemblies now, because I loved it when the organist would crank that thing out. You yeah. can sing as loud as you can and you can't even hear yourself, you know? So yeah. uh, I think that you sing from the heart, your worship to God, he will be pleased. And I don't think he's got some kind of music professor there evaluating you. Yeah, Mark, I got more questions, so we'll all save them for our next time. Matter Mm -hmm. of fact, we should should flip. You should be on five days a week, and I should come on once a month. Oh, man. This is fun. (laughs) I agree. So if you missed any of the show today, you're going to want to head to MyFaithRadio.com, go to the Afternoons with Bill show page, and you can uh, hit rewind and listen from the beginning. We had a great hour with Dr. Mark Muska, Ask the Professor, and a special thanks to Patrick Albanese and Tom Bernardo. It has really been a great day. Thank you for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Just love you like crazy, and I'm awfully glad that I get to spend this time with you. It means a lot to me. Thank you so much. As you put your head on the pillow tonight, just know that God's working out his great plan in your life. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.